This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're living in a time when the mass migration of people across borders has been greatly restricted as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So in this week's debate, we wanted to take a step back and look at whether the mass migration of people and movement across borders makes the world a better place. Speaking in favour of migration, we had Felix Markhart, author of The New Nomads, and speaking against, we had David Goodhart one of the most thought-provoking intellectuals looking at the negative impacts of mass migration. The discussion was chaired by Jenny Kleeman, author of Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, and you can find links for all our speakers' books in the podcast description. But now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Jenny Kleeman. I am delighted to introduce our guest tonight. We have with us Felix Marcotte. He is an Austrian-American writer born and raised in Paris, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times and Time, among others. He is the author of the new book, The New Nomads, How the Migration Revolution is Making the World a Better Place. We also have David Goodhart. He is a journalist, commentator and author. He's the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine. His books include The Road to Somewhere and most recently Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. So perhaps we should begin with, obviously, we're living through very, very strange times. Uh, migration hasn't really been possible in a conventional uh, sense, in a legal sense, as a result of the pandemic uh, for the past, uh, you know, 14, 15 months. So I, I want to ask both of you to begin with how uh, the pandemic ha- has changed your view of, of migrants and uh, migration, Pe- beginning perhaps with uh, with David. It hasn't really changed my view of migration at all. Why should it? <laughs> I mean, it, it's true there has been less movement of people. I mean, actually, I mean, I suppose to the extent that there are sort of general political impulses that have sort of been revealed by the pandemic. I mean, they've been quite socially conservative ones and quite social democratic ones. I mean, this has been the hour of the nation state international institutions have not covered themselves in glory, the EU, the WHO, and so on. Indeed, I mean, it it is likely, at least in the short and medium term, to lead to some pushback against sort of hyper-global, what Danny Roderick calls hyper-globalisation, you know, um, particularly when it comes to things like, you know, producing PPE equipment close to home, you know, the idea that these these long supply chains are not always to, to... to, the, to our advantage, so so I think it's 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 reinforced the nation state. So I suppose I suppose that is going to be a, a, a force pushing somewhat against greater openness. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to lead to any 
any great upsurge in, in protectionism or xenophobia. Or, indeed, it's, it's quite remarkable in some ways. I mean, how, how the, the sort of, uh, I mean, how kind of, you know, pretty sort of liberal attitudes have been revealed. I mean, I haven't heard anybody sort of saying, well, you know, why do we have the Indian variant so widespread in this country? You know, does it have anything to do with that? We have a very large British Indian minority. I mean, I suspect it does have something to do with that. But I mean, nobody is sort of, you know, picking on people. You know, we have a huge, we've probably got about a million illegal immigrants in this country. And you thought that, you know, when there's a sort of pandemic raging, um, you'd have thought that might become an issue, but it hasn't become an issue. So I think uh, I think it is a, a, it, it's reinforcing the nation state, somewhat socially conservative, certainly social democratic. I mean, the way the state has put its arm around uh, uh, around us all and you know, uh, paid people's wages and so on. It's been a very sort of Keynesian social democratic moment in that sense. So, but yeah, I mean, perhaps perhaps in the medium term, the reinforcement of of the nation state, which, you know, which broadly speaking, I favour. I mean, I think hyperglobalisation has gone too far. The nation state has been weakened too much. And large-scale immigration is part of that package. So, yeah, perhaps in, in, in the medium term, it will uh, it will contribute to, to something of a reduction in flows, but who knows? Felix, has anything changed when it comes to migration because of the pandemic? Well, obviously, thank you, uh, Jenny, um, Obviously, it's changed in the very short term a lot, but I, I think what the um, I think the pandemic is is changing everything, and I, I think that it's going to take us many years to understand just how much it has changed everything. I think the one of the biggest things that it's um, changing is that it's making us aware of the complexity and entanglement of issues that so far modernity has encouraged us or that we've just found comforting to look at as separate issues. So, you know, once and for all, once and for all it's obvious to everyone that what happens in Wuhan can have consequences for everyone around the world. But... It's also entangling, it's also allowing us to see that things that we've, again, that we've found comfortable for our narratives, our national narratives, our global narrative as a civilization, the great progressive narrative, it's showing us that the stories that we've been telling ourselves are, are broken. And, and this has an impact, of course, and this will have an impact on migration. Because what we're seeing is that, you know, in a way, the narrative that has become the dominant narrative of modernity is that we have a functioning system. And unfortunately, some external events, the wrong people getting elected or taking power or cyclones and um, natural disasters or the financial crisis or climate change come and rock another, an, an otherwise pretty smooth sailing ship. And I think what, what the pandemic has made apparent and is making, and it's an inkling that most people have, although they don't always know how to, you know, how to, how to formulate it, how to explain it is that 
the crises in question are not external. They are the product, they are the consequence of the um, violent and unsustainable practices that we've been calling normal. And so in a way, what's happening with the pandemic is that people, I would argue like David, who, whom I, I, uh, I've often thought of as a pragmatist, in a way is, is not at all a pragmatist. Because what, if you read the analyses of, of David, there's something that's missing in the picture. And that is that the latest figures from climate scientists, the French ones who work for the IPCC, regarding the highest possible temperature rises between now and uh, between the, the uh, pre-industrial temperatures and 2100 are plus seven degrees Celsius. Plus seven degrees Celsius means that life on Earth between the island in the Aegean where I live and where I'm speaking to you from and Kinshasa is pretty much impossible or at least extraordinarily uncomfortable for humans. This means that, you know, this notion that, you know, we can just look at the, na look at the national realm and find solutions on how we want to live at the national realm are completely nuts. And so actually, what I would argue is that the real pragmatists are the people who are thinking really hard about what does it mean to be in a world that simply cannot process that in 78 years, this might be the situation on planet Earth. Because the, 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 the experts at the Resilience Center in Stockholm say that that means that there's two to three billion humans who are no longer around. So who's the pragmatist? David, do you want to come back on that? Yeah. I mean, Felix is setting up a completely ridiculous straw man. I mean, you can believe in the significance of the nation state and also in the importance of international cooperation on things like climate change, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, I can't write about everything. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't write about the environment, at least, at least not primarily. I mean, I'm aware of the issue, and and if if what Felix says is true, then I think it will again reinforce the nation state. It will not. It'll not weaken it. I mean, the, the causes of these things may be global, but the solutions will have to be driven through through national policies coordinated across the the, the most important. Um, carbon-consuming countries. And, and it will also require a world of considerably less movement. So, you know, a, a kind of, you know, Felix's happy world of us all becoming nomads, I'm afraid, is uh, completely ruled out by his own bleak environmental prognosis. May I pick up Go on ahead. that? I think there's, yeah, a, there's a huge, huge misunderstanding in, in the actual, in, in what nomadism is. And I, what I is think nomadism? Th this is a, this is, I think, where I really, really, uh, appreciated and, and enjoyed and, and thought, um, the, the road to somewhere was a really, really fascinating book. And I think what's been lost on 
especially um, urban liberals, is that traveling around the world at very rapid speed and, um, you know, just hopping around and, and having, uh, you know, a house here and a house there and working from your laptop on XYZ beach, et cetera, that, that, that's not nomadism. The, the word nomad comes from the word nomos. The word nomos is the pasture. And by extension only, it comes from nomas, which is the act of wandering on said pasture. And I think what, um, what I would argue is that the somewheres and the anywheres described by David, the, these are, and, and as he pointed out in, in that book, the, 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 the distinction, the limit between the two, the frontier is, is porous. And most of us need to feel, we, the, we sense instinctively the importance of place. But at the same time, we don't really know who we are until we leave home. We simply don't. And one of the worst things I would argue that can happen is if we continue today to pretend that we can know where we stand in the human trajectory without leaving home. And uh, the author Martin Shaw, who's a good friend, makes a very interesting distinction. Being of a place or from a place and rather an of a place. And it's important eventually for all of us to become of a place and to learn about the community, its culture, to connect with our surroundings. It's, it's, it's a very, um, again, sort of if you think of the nomad as the creature of the pasture, the nomad is, is not someone who's just obsessed with high-speed mobility. The nomad is profoundly curious and connecting, you know, like we spent 98% of our, of our time on earth in small groups of less than a hundred roaming around, but we roamed around very slowly and we were, you know, at, at the core experts of our surroundings. And if we didn't, if we weren't, we died very fast because it cost, you know, it was a life and death thing. And I think. What, um, what I think is dead and, and, and a victim of COVID that no one will really regret is that, you know, is the, the uber nomad, the hyper nomad, the digital nomad, the, you know, this kind of, this creature who surfs, uh, opportunistically whatever place has something to give to it, but actually never really engages with the local context, but that, that is not nomadism. And that is not the, 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 that is not, I think what, um, indeed that that's not the, well, uh, but Felix, I mean, I, I, Sorry. Yes, I, please. I mean, I enjoyed your book, uh, but I was kind of a little bit puzzled by it because you, you kind of said in it that you'd had this epiphany and you were no longer the kind of thoughtless sort of disengaged nomad and yet the book is still essentially a celebration of of kind of leaving and and of going out into the world and exploring it and 
uh, and and that's kind of all well and good, but it doesn't it doesn't sort of tell us anything about how we should manage migration <laughs> between nations or what level is appropriate. And also, towards the end of the book, I I found this actually rather useful definition of a, a very a useful but very kind of restricted definition of um, what you're talking about, which is, I mean, you, you kind of describe migration stroke nomadism as meaningful time away from home. And actually, that made me think about um, Bowlby's attachment theory. I mean, when he's sort of talking about, you know, the psychologist, British psychologist of the 50s, 60s, he's, he's a bit unpopular now uh, because of his stress on the attachment, prim- primary attachment between baby and mother, which has been seen as sort of oppressive by a certain strand of feminism. But um, he kind of, he talks about how you know, how we do go, you know, the baby goes out into the world on a kind of piece of elastic and is, but feels, you know, feels secure when it can return to its sort of home base, which is its mother. But, you know, gradually as it sort of grows and becomes a toddler, the, the piece of elastic sort of grows longer. And then sort of human beings are like that, I think. And, yeah, I mean, most of us do, you know, we all like going on holiday, you know, going to different places and experiencing that. And some people like to, you know, leave their country and live in another country, although I think about 3% of the world's population live in a country other than one they were born in. It's a tiny percentage of people who, who do that. But like I say, I mean, you, you I, I didn't really see the results of the epiphany, except perhaps you were kind of, you were kind of recognising some of the strength of the argument of the other side, which, which is, which is, you know, good and open-minded of you. But what I felt you did was sort of convert, as it were, just adapt your definition of, of this highly mobile sort of nomad world from the kind of careless nomad to the engaged and careful nomad. But we're still talking about, you're still presenting a model of a world in which, you know, the, the largest possible number of people are living this very highly mobile life is that is that fair i want you to answer that felix but i also want to want to to move us on to this idea of, of this backlash against immigration that we've seen certainly over the past 10 years in europe if you look at hungary if you if you look at britain often from populations that don't actually have large numbers of migrants within them. And, and I, I want you to touch on that. Why do you think that's happening? Is it, you know, are there genuine concerns that, that need to be listened to? Or is it all just something that's being amplified by certain sections of the media? So I, I, I really don't think that this is, you know, amplified in a way that is, um, you know, that doesn't reflect a real, real misgivings from the population. I think it's a, it's a reaction to, again, I would say a, a, a broader set of issues. You know, when I hear David describe, um, sort of what he's focused on, um, political scientists tend to look at the last 300 years and sort of explain most of what's happening today based on those two, 300 years at best. To be honest, I would argue many political scientists argue that what's going on today can be explained by what happened in the past 50 years. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is that uh, I guess like to answer your question, David, I've, I've, I've uh, adopted the lenses a bit more of an anthropologist and I'm looking at things with a bit more uh, perspective. I, I feel that trying to explain the world 
looking at the past few centuries is it's again like it 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 says this is realistic but what it is 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 a bit childish i mean it it just doesn't you know i would argue that again if you look at things from a a, a greater perspective we have been sedentary creatures for just 10,000 years and you know the vast majority of our time on earth has been very differently i'm not arguing let's go back to living in caves or on trees but i think that something in our world view changed when we became sedentary creatures and that something is killing us today so to come back to your question jenny i think that if you look at these reactions if you look at many other reactions sometimes violent or if you look at conspiracy theories or the rise of uh, religious fundamentalism and all these things i see as reactions to modernity they are reactions to a narrative which is that goes something along you know it's the rosling pinker narrative which says you know 300 400 years ago a bunch of white dudes in uh, in europe through sheer ingenuity and brilliance uh discovered a few things and since then we've been building on that and um it's been getting better and better for most people or act- actually not for most people but for the best possible number of people and um it's um it's an unequal progress and it's uh it's not working uh it's not working out perfectly but this is the best game in town and that's about it and um you know some have been left behind but most uh, but but you know again this is the best game in town and i i think that more and more people are realizing that this narrative is very self-serving it um it doesn't take into account the fact that those who were so called so to speak left behind weren't left behind they were they are where they are the places in the world that we don't want migrants from they are there where they are because people in the places where we live are living the way we live and have built the way the the, the societies that we have built there is now a a a really um significant amount of research about how the crops of places you know of the colonies india and china uh, among others were confiscated from local uh, populations and shipped the first time that the world was global in victorian england were shipped to britain to leeds to liverpool to um manchester to fuel the birth of the industrial revolution and and um and modern capitalism and that led to i think uh, the the figure in between 1890 1892 that led to tens of millions of people dying from famine all over these uh, ex colonies and in in a way to a large extent what we've been calling the third world is not really 
you know, it, 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 it was not left behind. It was produced by the revolution that we heralded. So I think it's a, it's, it's really a, a, a question of perspective on things. And also, I think that when David says, you know, I can't focus on everything, climate is one issue. I'm like, no, climate is not one issue. Climate is the shitstorm that it's the mother of all issues. Everything else is a joke. If we don't, as a matter of absolute urgency, if we don't stop othering each other, we will go on othering nature. And if we go on considering that we are not part of, of one metabolism, what's going to happen is the doomsday scenario that I described earlier on. I so, want to give David a chance to, to respond to that. But I also, David, I, I'd like to hear your perspective on, on why you think there has this, been this hmm. backlash uh, against migration over the past 10 years, certainly in Europe. Is this uh, just a, a, a disaffection, a reaction to modernity? Yeah, well, it's a reaction to the kind of excesses of liberal modernity, I think, in many ways. The uh, the feeling of many people, perhaps the, you know, particularly poorer, less successful people in rich countries who feel that, that social contracts have been challenged in some ways by large-scale immigration. Uh, and I, mean, I think you know, one of the weaknesses of, of, of modern liberalism is that it has been it's too readily embraced change, partly because of the sort of nomad worldview that Felix talks about. I mean, the, I mean one of the problems with Felix's uh, whole argument is that he, he's basically won. I mean, you know, the, the, the liberal anywheres, in my language, who've dominated our societies for the last 25 years or so, it's, you know, particularly reinforced by mass higher education, they are the people who believe very strongly in in openness, in mobility, in autonomy, tend to be very individualistic. And they, you know, highly educated people tend to be comfortable with novelty and change and, and enjoy it and, uh, and want more of it. And, and the openness that they, uh, that, they, that they have brought about in our societies through uh, relatively open immigration, uh, at least until this backlash, I think has you know the the over dominance of that worldview has been has been part of the problem because a very large minority, if not a majority, of people you know even in in very rich societies where most people are reasonably well educated up to a certain level, um, but you know it's it's a it's a kind of personality trait of at least fifty percent of the population is that actually they prefer stability and security and familiarity. Of course, they you know they also like to go on holiday and they like change within. Uh, you know, within a sort of controlled environment. And I think a lot of those people have felt that society has been changing too fast. Uh, there's a kind of right-wing version of that, which has been the overconfident embrace of the creative destruction of, of modern capitalism, the, the kind of the story that led to the disappearance of an industrial culture in this country in, in the space of about 10 or 15 years. The, the over-rapid deindustrialization, even compared to other uh, European countries, say, compare what happened in industrial Lancashire and Yorkshire to what happened in the Ruhr Valley in, in Germany. I mean, we, we destroyed whole industries almost overnight. They did it much more gradually. 
And on the left, I think the, 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 the kind of the liberal mistake has, has, has focused on too great an openness to population change, essentially. You know, if you live in a suburb of London and over a period of sort of 10 or 15 years, it changes it. The population of it changes by 50 percent. And, so, you know, suddenly half the people in the street are speaking a language you don't know, particularly your older person. This is uncomfortable to many people. You don't have to be xenophobic or malevolent to, to feel that. So I think there's a sort of right-wing version of the uh, the, um, the kind of over-eager embrace of change, and there's a sort of left-wing or liberal version of it. Um, but but I think you know that that worldview has, was dominant, and 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 in various forms there has been a pushback against it. Brexit here, Trump in America, uh, various forms of populism in you know you know some of it legitimate, some of it less legitimate forms of populism in continental Europe. But I think one can go too far as well. I mean, you know, a lot of people would say backlash. What backlash? I mean, you know, you know, at least until the pandemic, you know, immigration in this country was still running at kind of net 300,000 a year. This government has liberalized student migration. It's returned to the system we had before where students were allowed to stay on for two years after they'd studied. We've, we've, um, we've, we've, we've opened our doors in principle to... I, don't, I can't remember how many millions of Hong Kong Chinese who might come here. I mean, this is hardly, uh, you know, a, a vicious backlash against uh, human mobility. <laughs> but, I, but nonetheless, I think it's in the context of a, you know, of a government that has that has pursued Brexit and understands that part of the point of part of the issue with Brexit was was to do with immigration. But I don't, th- you know, I mean, I think in a perfectly legitimate way, people people felt that the, that the social contract was undermined because the problem. Particularly with modern forms of immigration, you know, we're not talking so much about developing country immigration from developing countries, but immigration, you know, white Europeans coming here. There's a there's a there's a selection process, isn't there? The people that come here tend to be the most you know, energetic and ambitious, and and they leapfrog over the local population, much of the local population, and and so people have a sort of sense that their that their national citizenship has been kind of diluted. That they have, that they're taking, that it's become less meaningful in some ways, precisely because it's less controlled. It's the, it's it's less, and and you see this in you know this point about how people are very anti-immigration in places where there is virtually no immigration. That I think is the answer to that. That it's not so much about immigration; it's about the it's where you stand in the social contract. And this you see this most vividly of all, of course, in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, you know, which is the most hostile to immigration of anywhere in Europe, and has the least immigration. But what they have is emigration. So their elites have buggered off to to Britain and America and France and Germany and kind of left them behind. And they're thinking, well, we don't really like this. You know, I mean, it's a sort of failure, you might say, of noblesse oblige. The, the elites or the, the dominant, the educated, the, the better off people in the society are not treating the ordinary people in the way that in a, in a democracy, people think they should be treated. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm going to take your questions in a moment. But before we do, I wanted to put a a question to Felix. You recently wrote that Davos is dead and coronavirus killed it. Can you explain what you mean by that and and what we can learn from it? What what impact that should have on on our thinking? Yeah, I I think that... um I used to attend the, the, the World Economic Forum a lot. And, um, there's a sense that there's a, there's a number of ways in which modern thinking has, has proven we're, we're realizing just certain things that we've been doing don't work. And again, sort of the pandemic has been an extraordinarily agent to allow us to realize some of those things. And among others, There is this idea that if we gather the whole world in one place at the top of a mountain for three days and those people that we gather are truly committed to improving the state of the world as the motto of the World Economic Forum puts it, then good things will happen. It's sort of the ideological equivalent of trickle-down economics. And, And the truth is that... The work that we have done, that we need to do, in my opinion, and in that column, I, I, I bring up the fact that I have a, a history uh, in uh, history with substance addiction. And uh, I believe that the way we are, what we require today to um, what we're dealing with, you know, whether it's climate change or uh, you know, the, the structural inequality of our world and a number of other issues that have, that, that, that we're confronted with. These are not problems. Problems can be solved. They're like, um, you know, arithmetic, for, arithmetic for eight year olds or 10 year olds. What we're dealing with here are predicaments. Predicaments, you can, they're like addiction. You can answer, you can respond to them in a healthy or unhealthy way in gradation, but they don't go away. And this idea that anything can be tackled if we just put our minds together and uh, we just sort of spend three days thinking and talking together, that just does not work. And I compare it in that article to an ayahuasca ceremony without proper guidance and without proper follow-up. 
You know, it, it, it feels amazing when you do it. I hear, I haven't tried that drug specifically, but you know, you go home and uh, a week later you feel like, um, you know, what the hell was that? Like I thought, I thought you were, I came back full of hope and a new man. And, and a week later I'm, I'm not a new man or woman and, uh, I feel terrible and nothing's changed. And, um, you know, I think it's time for, if you, you, if you take this metaphor of addiction, if we have indeed become addiction, as I suspect we have to growth, to extraction, to carbon. And if the, the best predictor of a person, a company, a country or a household's carbon footprint is how much money they spend, then asking people who are the richest people in the world, or at the helm of the companies with who spend the most money in the world to lead the intervention we so sorely require, then what we're doing is we're asking people with the best heroin on the block to lead the intervention. It's, it's insane. And it cannot work. And we need to stop asking these people to, to, to deliver anything resembling the kind of sobriety and maturity and discernment that these predicaments require of us. I, I'm going to take a question from the floor now. This is a question for David. Do you think, David, there is a country which has the right balance of nationalism and internationalism? I think probably this country has a reasonably good balance of it. I mean, I guess it's sort of easier for small countries to balance it. I mean, small countries often have the feel of being a kind of extended family. I mean, the kind of islands and Denmarks and um, um, Austrias, Sweden maybe, where, uh, and, and also perhaps particularly countries that don't have, you know, or they have a past which is sort of less complicated than countries that have been very dominant in the world, like uh, like Britain. So maybe, you know, maybe a country like Ireland uh, of of but but like I say, smaller countries have a sort of ha, have a particular advantage, you might say. But particularly looking at it from a kind of more liberal perspective, but I think we've got a we've got a pretty good balance between between the national and the international. I mean, you know, we're a, we're a very very open country. You know, very you know really significant minorities now from lots of other parts of the world. You know, attached to. You know, even despite Brexit, you know, still deeply embedded in all sorts of international institutions, and of course, you know, through the you know through the former empire and Commonwealth, we are, we have um, almost unparalleled uh, global connections, which you know, which are clearly valued. So, um, but you know, but we've also, and I think perhaps particularly now, I mean, I think you know, we have we've responded to the kind of the, the democratic impulse that things were kind of moving too fast and perhaps being a bit too open. And so I think, you know, we're also balancing that, that openness and internationalism with, with a kind of reinforcement of, you might say, sort of, you know, the value of national citizenship. There's a question for you, Felix, from Flip Webster, who says, Felix, surely nomads move on. What Western cultures have is migrants from other countries for economic reasons, and these people stay and rarely go, in inverted commas, home. What would you say to that? 
Yeah, I think that the metaphor of nomadism to describe migration has its limits is the first thing I would answer. And um, yeah, uh, some people come for economic reasons. And, um, and um, you know, there's, again, I, I, I think if you look at the immediate picture and you say, well, you're coming from a poor country, sorry about that. Not great, but, you know, our country's doing much better and, uh, we can't really, we're sorry. We're, we're, you know, like there's no space for you guys. I think it makes sense. Again, if you look at just the, you know, the past decades and you just completely abstract the rest of the human trajectory. But if you look at why the people who are in those countries are in the, you know, the, why the economies of those countries are in the state that they are. If you look at the fact that Africa today has four, produces about four to five percent of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions for 17% of the population. Um, and whereas the 20% richest humans produce 70% of greenhouse gas emissions. And you see that in the coming years, people are going to be moving more and more for that reason, because it's actually not just, you're not just poor when you live in those countries, you're dying of climate change. Then you know, when you realize that these countries are in the state that they are in because we've been flourishing it, 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 again, like the, the problem with our narrative, with the progressive narrative is that it's it, this unified story that somehow there was a there was a global level playing field and some countries got ahead and the others didn't, and others didn't, and we're really sorry, but, you know, we're going to have to close the borders. Well, I mean, that's just nuts. That's not the story. They were not, they were not left behind. They were, um, their situation was produced by us. So saying, because it's 300 years ago, well, you know, it's, it's a long time ago. Again, it's, it's, it's a long time ago if you look at, uh, the f time frame of a political scientist. If you look at the time frame of an anthropologist, it's half a second ago. And, you know, we need to, we need to pay attention to this. And I don't say it because I'm an idealist. I, I say it again because my daughter, who's three years old, will be around. In 2100. And the way we are, the way we are rationalizing the insanity of our present as rational, as, as normal is leading us to absolute disaster. We can't afford it. But, but 
David, this leads on. This leads on. There's a, there's a question that, that that I want to come to, and and you can come back on that. But the question is to you, and and I think it's relevant here. Somebody has asked, do you not think it's hypocritical to say we need to help the left behind, but not want to help the left behind who happen to live in another geographical? Well, place? Well, I never said we shouldn't help the left behind who live in another geographical place. You know, we have uh, even even with the recent reduction, we have one of the highest levels of uh, development aid of any country in the rich world uh, and I mean I, I, I do take issue with I mean Felix if you if you feel so strongly about climate change why the hell didn't you write a book about climate change I mean it, it, it appears sort of in the margin of the book you've just written but but it, but it is very much in the margin I mean uh, <laughs> I don't think it is well and also I mean I think it's the subtext of the entire well, you book. should have made it the text not the subtext I mean the it's it's also it's also in the text yeah. but and, uh, but I also think I mean your economic history is contentious I mean you know the, the extent to which rich countries slowed down the development of poor countries uh, is a very very complicated question I mean it may be partially true but they may also have sped it up you know with infrastructure and so on and in any case, now, and indeed not just now, but for the, for the last few decades, we've been in an unprecedented situation in which rich countries actually want poor countries, okay, sometimes somewhat hypocritically in terms of the way that trade is managed, but, but, at, but at, at least there is a rhetoric, and often more than just a rhetoric, of the richest countries in the world want the poor countries to flourish. And, I mean, they don't want to flourish at their own expense or at the expense of their own citizens. We live in democracies. I mean, politicians wouldn't last very long if they, if they were logical universalists. I mean, in the, you know, if you, we all believe in the moral equality of all human beings, but very, very few of us believe we have the same obligations to all human beings. You know, our obligations sort of ripple out from attachments to sort of family and friends and neighborhoods and towns and countries and to the whole globe. Virtually nobody is a logical universalist in genuinely thinking that they have the same obligation to everybody, and certainly not democratic politicians, and, and I don't blame them. But we've never been more open to... We, we positively want poor countries to become as rich as possible. We don't want them to become as rich as possible through sending their... Or at least, uh, I mean, th this is what, you know, the logic of, of more open immigration is, is the brain drain problem. I mean, that we take the, the ablest and most energetic citizens from poor countries. They come, they come here, and if I was one of them, obviously I would want to do that too. They, they kind of short circuit the historical process by moving from a poor country to a rich country rather than staying in their own countries and, and, and catching up with this. You know, I mean, you know, the United States, no, the United they, States decided to let China into the World Trade Organization in 2001, at, at, I mean, actually at the expense of many of its citizens, uh, which did lead to, you know, we had the slight hiccup of Donald Trump as a result of that, or partially as a result of that. So, uh, so actually, I'm, 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 that, that, is a, that is an example against my own argument that on whole democratic societies don't do things against the interests of their citizens because actually the, you know, America did do something very definitely against the interests of a section of its citizens whose whose livelihoods were wiped out by much cheaper Chinese imports. So I mean I, I just don't think it's true that that the, the kind of Western world is kind of ruthless and uh, and 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 uh, has no interest in. I mean, but the, you know, but how countries develop is is often still a bit of a mystery. Uh, you know, what, what, you know, that, okay, that right combination of a state that's neither too strong nor too weak, you know, a, a, a rule of law that overcomes tribalism and so on and so forth. These things did happen 
to to emerge in Europe and, and you know through through chance and geography and all sorts of other things, but an historical accident, uh, you know, in the fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century, and we have you know we are enormously lucky because of that. But we do we, we want to extend our luck to the rest of the the global population too, but not through bringing their brightest and best to our countries. That seems to me an absolute crazy way of doing it. Yes, I, I mean, Felix, I, I, w- I want you to come back on that. But obviously, we, we have another question that, that touches exactly on that. Would that not exacerbate global inequality if, if the most energetic and talented people move and, and, and leave the rest of their country people behind? So uh, th- this book is not about it's it's just the, the, the new nomads is not an argument in favor of people from poor countries all moving to rich countries. It, it just isn't that it's a it's a it's an argument about. Um, it's a book about what happens to us when we leave home and why that is not that, that, that instinct and, and, and the virtues of doing that don't go against the fact that we still, at the end of the day, need to build a home and we need to, it's, it's the, the, the journey of the migrant is a, is a search for a home. So, you know, questions about, what happens if everyone comes to rich countries? You know, like probably very complicated things happen. And I don't have the, 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 the answer to what, um, you know, my, I simply, that is not something where I have any kind of expertise and, and I'm, I don't purport to have any. There's two things I take issue. I can't, uh, I can't seem to choose between issue and issue. But um, with what David said, the first is, did we slow down these economies? I think it will, the time will come, not very long time, when the idea of using the term, you know, slowed down other economies to describe what happened will, will be extraordinarily shocking to, to really, like, anyone around like this idea is it's it's deeply problematic and it shows to me that while we don't live in a colonial in a you know in a colonial system anywhere anymore we are surrounded by coloniality i.e the rationalization of the logic that led to the violence and the oppression of colonial of the colonial era and when when david talks about liberal dem- democracies and people who live them being in favor of poor countries doing you know lifting up you know if if everyone in the world had the quality of life the earnings and therefore the spending of not Britain, but the average Slovenian, which is considerably poorer, again, like our carbon emissions would be through the roof. I don't know what temperature it would be on Earth right now, but it would be something insane. Like, so, so there's what I find fascinating when I listen to, to David is that there's a lot of, there's clearly a lot of smarts. He has, you know, he has this, this classic political scientist approach to things, but it's sort of, there's these entire swaths of reality that are cut out because this is not my field of expertise. And I 
I, I just well, say... I'm an optimist. I mean, by the way, and I'm not a political scientist, Felix. I'm a journalist. <laughs> uh, I've never even studied okay. political science, but uh, I mean, I've probably read a few. Polit- You've been described. You're often described as a political. Am I? Scientist oh, right. Well, um, yeah. it's it's wrong. Um, but I mean, you know, I mean, I think that there have to be technical solutions to climate change. Otherwise, as you say, we're doomed. And I and I'm I'm relatively optimistic. I mean, human ingenuity, you know, gets us out of most most tight corners. But um, what I like about your book, actually, is but you're the, trying to overcome yeah. the, the cosmopolitan, you're giving an answer to the cosmopolitan paradox. You know, the, the, the cosmopolitan, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, the, the cosmopolitan, somebody who like, you know, like a butterfly likes to sort of, likes to, like to, likes to flit from culture to culture, not necessarily uh, uh, having a perhaps rather a loose attachment to their, to their own national culture. Um, but of course, the, the 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 problem with that is that if we're all cosmopolitans, then there are no cultures to flit between, and you you get that, and you, so <laughs> you're you're a rational cosmopolitan who wants to keep you know embedded national cultures, and embedded national cultures require you know a, a, a critical mass of people who don't flit off anywhere. So I mean, I I, I kind of raised doff my cap to your to your attempt to to answer. Um, the cosmopolitan paradox, and I think you, you, you kind of you, you you know you have a good bash at it. I, I want to encourage all this doffing of caps, but I also want to get in one final question. Uh, this actually this is a question from Agnieszka Wojcik. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and it's you, David. Uh, but I'm sure that you'll want to come in on it as well, Felix. Which is, do you expect a new type of migration resulting from the management of of COVID in the Western world? In, for example, some people living in Western countries may want to escape totalitarian-like arrangements of control in a society that seems very likely to result in the post-COVID era. Oh, that's rather an interesting idea. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, that um, it's a bit like a bit like this idea that eventually, when we have a, a sort of truly open, uh, where, where everybody on the globe is kind of you know rich and, and happy, we will distribute not according to the the random chance of where we were born, but according to our kind of personality type. So, you know, people will congregate in different parts of Britain, you know, the kind of the the, the light-hearted people will be in one town and the kind of rather gloomy people in another town. And I guess that's applying that idea to, to sort of COVID regulations. People, you know, lots of people in this country have rather have rather embraced very draconian Regulations, while other people have, uh, as in all countries, there's been this sort of divide. And uh, I mean, I think the answer. I mean, there are there, there are even now, even though we're more sceptical about the idea of, as it were, kind of national character. I mean, I think uh, you know some national stereotypes are true or have a substantial element of truth about them. I mean, I have I have lived in one other country. I lived in Germany for three and a half years, and. And you know, and it's clear quite a lot of German stereotypes are well, you know this too, Felix, are true up to a point. It doesn't apply obviously to every single German. So you might say people already sort of have the option, if, you know, if they're kind of rich and mobile enough, or you know have a have a mobile profession, they could choose to go and live in a country where you know the combination of sort of the weather and and the national character. You know, it's most enjoyable. In that case, though, you know, why doesn't everybody live in Italy? Uh, you know, <laughs> um, perhaps that's the sort of, you know, why doesn't everybody live in Italy paradox? 
Felix, what would you say to that? Why doesn't everyone live in Italy? Everyone who could afford to or, you know, is mobile and yes. free enough to do so. <laughs> or on a Greek island. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just reminds me of a... This reminds me. I live on a Greek island because my ancestors hail from here. And I realized after several years in Stockholm, David, that it just wasn't going to work for me. Gloomy <laughs> North Europeans drove you away. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, although I wouldn't say it that way. And I have a Swedish daughter uh, to show for it. So, but, um, you know, at least uh, some, some, I think it was Sasha Guitry who said the, the, um, the, um, the French are Italians in a bad mood. Uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, that's why Italy might be a good place for, 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 for some of us, some of those people that you describe. David, there's another thing where I, I think I don't, um, share your optimism. And that is this idea that technology, technological developments are going to save the day. I think among others, you know, this book is about, Metaphysics, actually. But one of the things that nomads have a um, share, I would argue, is a, like a, a, a reverence for the fact that what we know is infinitely smaller than what we don't know. And that actually most of the time technologies create as many problems, if not more, than they solve. Um, and what we are facing right now when it comes to growth and uh, extraction and carbon is behavioral issues. And technology does not save behavioral issues. It does not change our behavior. And Well, that's, that's right why I now, think technology has got to save us because we're not going to change our behavior on a large scale. I think, unfortunately, there is one, there's only one thing in my experience that does change human behavior in a sustained way, in a meaningful and sustained way, and it's pain. So my uh, my opinion on what will get us to actually change in the end is when a lot of people experience sufficient amounts of pain. Our huge problem today is that the people who are causing most of the harm don't live in the places where climate change is already uh, ruining people's lives, such as Bangladesh, the Horn of Africa, the Sahel Desert, Nicaragua, Honduras parts of India. Well, Canada's getting pretty and, hot. And, yeah, and, and, and uh, yeah, but okay, but it's still I, the place. I'm afraid yeah. Sorry. we are going to have to leave it stop. there and it, it's not the place that I want to leave it, uh, you know, about the, what, what, what we need to, to change is for us all, all to experience pain, but nonetheless, that is where we're, we're leaving it. And so whilst this discussion I know could go on for a very long time, I'm afraid I have to bring it to an end. I'm sure you all want to join me in thanking Felix and David for such an interesting conversation. And thank you for all your questions. They came in thick and fast, particularly at the end there. Um, I wish we could have taken more of them. Thank you for joining us tonight. Now back to Connor. 